This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 133 of the iFreaks show. This week on our panel, we have James Uber. Hello from Minneapolis. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have two special guests. We have Jared Richardson. Hi, welcome from uh, Raleigh Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. And Andy Hunt. Hey, glad to be here. Why don't you two go ahead and introduce yourselves really quickly? Uh, my name's Jared Richardson. Uh, gosh, been an Agile coach for a number of years, written a few books, speak at a few conferences. Most recently, on the topic of today's discussion, been collaborating with uh, Andy on the Grows methodology, which has been a lot of fun. How about you, Andy? Yeah, some of that. Uh, so <laughs> I'm Andy Hunt. Uh, I wrote a, a, a little book around the turn of the century with my friend Dave Thomas called The Pragmatic Programmer that uh, you might have heard of. And uh, I've written, I think, a total of nine books since then. And uh, our publishing company has published ooh, 200 to 250 titles covering everything from Ruby and Rails and now Elixir and Phoenix to Agile Methods, anything the aspiring programmer would want to learn these days. Yeah, and I think your most important accomplishment was uh, an interview that happened about mm, five years ago. Uh, you, were, uh, you were interviewed on my old Teach Me to Code podcast. Oh, Okay. Great. Yes, I remember it well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that. Yeah, that, that. was awesome. Sure. <laughs> it's not the years, it's the mileage. That's right. Uh, isn't that the truth? <laughs> but, but, yeah, I think we talked a bit about pragmatic thinking and learning and the Agile Manifesto, and that was a lot of fun. So uh, we'll put a link back to that blast from the past. So do you want to kind of give us a thumbnail sketch really quickly of what the Grows Method is? Yeah, we can do that. Uh, let me talk uh, just a little bit before we get into that about kind of why we felt this was necessary and, and sort of how we got here just a little bit. I know no one likes to hear big, long history lessons, so I'll, I'll keep it short. But I thought it was it was interesting to me about probably about that same time, probably about five, six years ago, I was uh, visiting a client and they were really – doing XP on a large scale. They had a large team, 100, 150 people maybe, and I had rarely seen such devotion in a organization to, you know, sort of getting it right, to, you know, working and, and really trying to excel at the practices. And I went in at first and I thought, wow, this is great. You know, here's here's a, a large group of people who are committed to the ideas of Agile, who are, are really working on it. And, you know, this is great. Why couldn't the world be, be more like this? And as we started looking a little closer, you know, cue the, the, the dark violin music coming up in the background. Uh, <laughs> there, it was uh, an incredible dark side to it because they had fallen into the trap of trying to perfect the practices at the expense of actually understanding what they were doing or producing software or growing their skills or, you know, all the stuff we're actually supposed to be using the practices to help us do. 
they had fallen into the trap of celebrating the practices as their own end. Uh, and I, I sort of joked at the time that you know they'd gotten to the point where they had to have a, a, a stand-up meeting and story cards to decide where to go for lunch that day. And literally, it was sort of that bad. Uh, and I, I found out just at a conference earlier this year that that group um, is sort of no more. They kind of uh, imploded on themselves. And so at the time, I mean, we've all seen people misapply the lessons of the Agile Manifesto and, and get the wrong idea about Agile practices and this sort of thing. But that incident really stuck in my mind as, you know, doing it on sort of an industrial scale, you know, really misunderstanding and running with that, that misunderstanding as far as they could. And then since then, I've seen more and more of that. I've seen more of people misunderstanding the Agile Manifesto and you know, either just working on the practices for the practices' sake or, or more commonly, adopting maybe two or three of the, the common Agile practices and saying, yep, we're there, we're Agile, we're, we're good, we're ready to go, and kind of missing the point. So something about, I guess about a year ago, somebody said something about, you know, I would really would like to experiment with this idea of Agile with, with my team. I'd like to try out some of the stuff and see what works and see what doesn't work, and take the best of it and do that. But I can't do that because none of the existing methods tell me that that's okay to do. <laughs> Which, yeah, I know. It, it's, I, mean, I mean, this is this is why Scott Adams is in business. He just that's gets right. some stuff in, and it's it, the material writes itself, folks. Uh... But, but that really... That struck me, and I, I've heard similar sentiments and reticence from people, uh, especially if they're not particularly familiar with the ins and outs of software development or particularly familiar with the dynamics of how agility should work, how modern software development should work. And so on the one hand, you've got a set of people who really are curious and want to try stuff but are kind of hamstrung because they don't have a license, that they don't feel empowered to just try it on their own. So they take and do two or three scrum, practice, scrum practices and call it, sorry, that was just a typo, uh, one or two scrum practices and, and call it done. And, you know, ignoring any level of technical practices like you would see from XP. And, you know, that's kind of where they get stuck. So I figured, okay, at a minimum, I can help some of these folks out and say, bang, here's a brand new method. We're going to call it Grows. Now you've got a license to experiment. That's so if nothing else, right there, now you've got, you've got mom's permission to go you know, try and be agile. Do I dare admit that I've been on those teams where you know, I, I get hired, I come in, and they're like, they're like, yeah, we do agile. And I'm like, what do you mean by agile? Well, we do scrum. Okay, well, what do you mean by scrum? Well, we have a stand-up meeting every morning. Okay, <laughs> you know. We have an hour-long status meeting every morning. We don't plan right, right, right. anything. We're totally agile. Yeah. Right? How about the, the team that has their daily stand-ups on Fridays? They're agile, right? Because they call it a daily. Yeah. On Fridays. Only Fridays. I've also been on yeah. that team where we had the scrum master that was more interested in the process than he was in getting software written. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. But, but he had the training and the buy-in from the company because he was trained and because blah, 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 and, you know, social proof, and it was a disaster. Sure, and that's, that's the really the big, the big danger right there is, you know, 
all the major methods, you know, Scrum, XP, Lean practices, they all will tell you in the fine print how to do it correctly. Uh, and they're and they're right. They're absolutely right. Yes, you should do these things. You should not do these other things, and so on. The problem is no one reads the fine print. You know, they gravitate towards the several popular practices or their interpretation of several of the popular practices and kind of call that done. So one of the things uh, I was talking to Jared and, and we realized was, you know, if nothing else, people will do the practices that you give. They may not understand why. They may not care why. They may not ever do anything else. But they will do practices. Okay, let's use that to advantage then. Let's come up with some practices that even if they don't do anything else right, at least this will help get them on the right road and inculcate some of the, the values that we want them to have you know, by using the practices as a vehicle to get them there. The other thing we realized, right, for Scrum, for instance, says inspect and adapt. But every single Scrum team you've ever encountered is inspecting and, and replicating and duplicating what they learned in their first class. Mm-hmm. Most of the practices out there, we, we tied it in with what Andy brought over with the Dreyfus model of skills acquisition and the refactoring your wetware book. With the Dreyfus model, it talks about the beginners need steps and it you know, moves up to stage five where you, you get a lot of freedom. And most of the existing practices either give you steps that beginners latch on to and won't let go of, you know, can't pry it out of my cold dead hands, or they're all principles and then the beginners have no steps to get started with. So Grows is trying to map that, right? Here are the steps, but if you're looking at Grows, it's really, really clear that you have to move up through the stages and eventually throw these steps away. Don't know that any other practice walks you through that. Well, and uh, I'll tell you that one thing that I have seen work really well on some of the teams that function well was that they did what you're talking about, where initially, yeah, we started out and we, you know, we were really, really specific about how we were going to manage our backlog and how we were going to do estimations and how, how and when we were going to pair program and how we were going to pull all of these other things together. And... Eventually, we started doing the retrospectives, and we'd sit down and we'd say, okay, well, we'd kind of like to try this other thing, or we'd kind of like to go in this other direction, or we'd like to see if this will work for us, or this particular practice, even though it's recommended with all the other practices we're doing, seems to be getting in the way. And so we're going to do some experiments around that. And eventually, what we'd wind up with was nothing that you would recognize as a specific methodology if you understood all of the Agile methodologies. It was just something that kind of pulled in practices from everywhere and worked for us. And, and that's exactly how it should be. You know, that that is the goal that we wanted. So, you know, back in 2001 at the turn of the century, right, there was the Agile Manifesto and that, that, that meeting in Snowbird with the 17 of us that got together and thought that'd be a good idea to do. And, you know, there was a, a couple of interviews uh, at the, like, 10-year reunion mark of that. And one of the interviewers said, okay, given all the, you know, this decade that has passed since then, what did you all expect to see happen that didn't, uh, you know, that kind of thing? And one of the things at the time was it was a common thought amongst all of us there that you would see an explosion of agile methods. You wouldn't see one or two or three. There'd, there'd be 50. There'd be hundreds. You know, every consultant and his dog would have their own mix and match mm-hmm. of variations on the, the popular practices at the time. And you'd have tons of this stuff. And that didn't happen. You know, the world largely gravitated 
to scrum practices or a subset of scrum, you know, as they call it, you know, jokingly, scrum butt. Mm-hmm. You know, well, we're doing scrum, but we're not doing the important half of it. And, you know, <laughs> largely skating over uh, XP or the, the sort of technical level practices at that level. And even, even if they had done that, XP still isn't complete unto itself. It assumes you're doing things underneath that that they don't mention, like using version control properly, right. uh, for example, right? So you've got, you've got the several layers of you've got to have the underlying, for God's sakes, use version control. And it galls me that in 2015, that's not 100% guaranteed. I meet people at every single conference I go to where their model for version control is a big shared disk and the last one in wins. Still, I've made that joke for like 30 years now, and it's not funny anymore. <laughs> it's depressing. <laughs> but, you know, so you've got that. Then you've got, you know, maybe maybe a... a one or two bits of, of XP is a sort of flavor for the more advanced teams. Everyone's doing the stand-up meeting, and they're trying to do iterations, but it's a six-month iteration that gets stretched out to a year. Yeah, I've seen that, and, too. <laughs> you know, kind of missing, missing the point here. So what Jared and I thought we would do is we'd put together some of these thoughts. We've got the Dreyfus uh, skill model to say, okay, one of the problems why people are mis understanding and misusing agile is we threw them all in at the deep end we gave them the end product and said okay this is what an agile team should look like this is what an agile developer should look like go Mm -hmm. and really didn't you know appreciate the the growth that it takes to get from a novice stage through advanced beginner competent proficient expert however you want it that's how dreyfus does it but it doesn't really matter however you dice the stages up you know You've got to go through the, this learning process to get there. And we as a community weren't really good about leading people through that process, about using uh, you know, any kind of educational pedagogy. It's just, oh, here, do it. And you know, didn't work out. So Grows, we've got the Dreyfus model to help guide us through the things. We really like this idea of experiments for a couple of reasons. First of all, as you mentioned, Charles, with, with your experience in that company – you know, not everything's going to work for you. You know, one size mm-hmm. doesn't fit all. You know, if you've got a, a huge team with separate uh, people as architects and UI and UX experts and all this stuff, or you've got a three-person startup and all of you do everything, that's a very different model. And, you know, any particular given practice is not necessarily going to work well with both of those or any of the other million uh, variants that are out there. Well, So on the one hand, you need experiments – to fuel adoption to say, will this work for us? But also, possibly more importantly, the idea of an experiment is that you've got some control over the process, over the adoption of the process. So, you know, instead of going in and either having an anointed scrum master or an interested executive or a lead developer who's into this, somebody cramming it down the team's throat and saying, yay, we shall be agile starting tomorrow, which doesn't work. Instead, it's like, guys, let's try this. It's an experiment. We're not committing to it, right? You get over that kind of fear of commitment and all that psychological resistance right out of the gate by saying, you know, this might not take. You know, we may not like pair programming. I may not like sitting next to you ever. Um, (laughs) You know, these things happen. And that's fine. But, you know, it gives you a chance to try it and work with it and adapt it if necessary because, after all, inspect and adapt is supposed to be the name of the game, right? Yeah, the other thing that's interesting, though, is that, first of all, I've seen 
companies where different teams actually had different methodologies, like within the sure. same company, but sure. working on the and same there's product. No, there's nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. In fact, I would I would say that's more the natural state of affairs, if needs be. Yeah. Because you know what's you know. I like to say in all my talks ever since the um, Thinking and Learning book that context is king. Context is the mm-hmm. most important thing to, to bear in mind. And that's a prime example of it. You know, you've got two teams that happen to work for the same company on the same project. All right, but what are they actually doing? Is, are they actually working on very similar pieces or are they working on very dissimilar pieces with you know, dissimilar talent sets, uh, deadlines, expectations? You know, I don't know the particular context there, but if the context is different, then it makes perfect sense that you know, the team organization and structure and methods would be different. Yeah. So one thing that I, I, I have to point out, though, with that kind of setup is that in a lot of corporations, especially as they get large, they tend to like to streamline their processes and they tend to like to have everybody use the same process. So how do you get the people who are higher up to get over that tendency and get over that being the right way so that developers can build the software in a way that makes the most sense to them? Well, I think fundamentally, and, and, and certainly as a business owner, I can, I can vouch for this, you know, with my business owner hat on, I don't care. What was that line in, in war games? You know, I don't care if you piss on a spark plug as long as it gets it done. As a business <laughs> owner, I just want it done. I would like it done for something less than the gross national product of Switzerland. I would like it done quicker than the heat death of the universe. But you know, other than that, I really shouldn't be poking in at that micromanagement level to particularly care. You know, there are some concerns about uh, training and, and going across teams and whatnot. But the other hand, your teams should be small and stable anyway. So you shouldn't have a lot of cross-pollination of pulling people from one team and into another in the first place. How small is small? Under a dozen. You know, because what happens, I mean, you, there's you know, tons of communication studies out there that show this, that the more people you get involved in something, the communication overhead goes up exponentially, which gets into a whole discussion of scaling agile, which is frankly an oxymoron. But that's, <laughs> that's about a six-hour discussion for another time, I think. Oh, um, uh, yeah. I had, uh, there was a great uh, – uh, oh, I forget who said it. But somebody had this great comment on Twitter saying that you know, instead of seeking to scale up agile first – Try scaling down your mess and then worry about, you know, that other thing. You mean adding something to something that's already messy makes it more messy? Imagine <laughs> Stunning. that. Stunning, isn't it? But the, and that's a good point. It's like, you know, and I will just I will just say this briefly, the idea of scaling agile is like scaling is gonna take something and make a lot more of it mm-hmm. and make it a lot more entrenched. And if what you've got is crappy or even vaguely crappy, then all you're gonna get is a lot more crappy that's a lot more now ingrained and hardwired into the organization. So that may not be the best way to go. So let's say that I am a company that has invested heavily in XP. So I've gotten people trained. I've got all my people doing what XP says I should do. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, okay, maybe there's something here that says that there are things I could do better that aren't strict XP. How do I start making the transition from XP over to grows? I'm getting the impression from you that you're not going to say, throw out XP and start over. You're going to say, start from where you're at. And then where do we go from there? Definitely. So 
what we have, and you can go to our, our website at growsmethod.com, uh, nice subtle, subtle pitch there, uh, <laughs> where we lay out uh, you know, some of these things. And th- there's, a, there's a couple aspects to that. So the first thing is what we want to make sure happens with Grows is that even if you are an experienced, in air quotes, XP shop or scrum shop or lean or crystal methods or whatever, you know, whatever you're doing, we want to make sure you haven't like skipped any steps. So even if you are at a higher level, you want to kind of at least look at the novice level steps and say, okay, do we have that covered? You know, does this cover the the bases? You know, and, and the beginning steps are really, really very brutally simple. You know, is everything in version control? Can you build your product on a bare machine with you know suitable build tools, can you check everything out and build a product release you know in one go? Do you have continuous integration, automated builds, that kind of you know very very boring but very necessary safety and hygiene level of you know automation and infrastructure? And what happens is you know quite a number of teams don't really have that. They they think they do, and they kind of sort of do. But it's well worth going back to the beginnings, back to the basics, and say, all right, let's make sure, you know, before we even go any further, let's get the basics down. Let's, let's make sure that we can, before we even ask what we should be building or if we're building the right thing, let's make sure that we can actually build something and get it out the door in a reliable and repeatable manner. Because if you can't do that, it doesn't matter what you're building. You can talk to the user till the cows come home whatever time that may be. I think it's like 4.30 a.m. I don't know. But, you know, you can talk to the users all you want. You can do, you know, user stories and cards and, and planning poker and all this stuff. And if you can't actually get the software out, it, none of that matters. So first thing, we look at the mechanics. You know, make sure you've got all that stuff covered. Then you start moving up the skill stages that we've got laid out and say, okay, now, now that we've got that done, let's talk about doing this, let's talk about doing that, you know, more customer involvement and so on and so forth and and up the chain you go. So, you know, one of the several keys that we want to make sure is that we've got that basic level covered and that development is done in a genuinely incremental and iterative fashion using the idea of tracer bullet development that we coined that term back in the pragmatic programmer. Jared expanded on that in his book, Ship It!, it's similar to uh, what other folks call a walking skeleton or a thin thread model or a red thread model or, or this kind of idea where the very first day of development, you've got a hello world that goes all the way end to end. So if you're doing you know, web development, it's going all the way from a, from a browser through you know, your web server engine, through a database, any other kind of middleware, other stuff you got glued in there. Whatever you've got, you've got all of it strung together. Very thin. Literally, hello world. You know, one or two lines of code all the way through, but you've got all the pieces, and then you go in to fill that in as you proceed. So these are the things that we think are important, and even if you're in an existing shop, you know, these and several and other ideas are things that you might have skated over. Maybe you're not doing as well as you could. You know, maybe there's room for improvement there. And then on top of that, we've got the idea of introducing experiments for an iteration. So you can say, okay, well, you know, we're not very good at some particular uh, practice that we've identified here. So let's try this this time. You know, let's, and we'll get some concrete feedback from that and say, okay, you know, yes, this is really definitely a problem. Here's what we can do better. So now, what's an example what, of uh, an experiment? 
Uh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> I like the JavaScript example, right? You, you come in on a team, and somebody says, ooh, I want to use this framework. Someone else says, I want to use that one. Someone else says, hey, I just wrote one while we were talking. At the end Boy, of the day... You, you understand JavaScript, because that's about how fast it's moving. <laughs> I do. So who wins? It's either the loudest voice or the most senior person, not the most suitable tool. So, I mean, Andy's been saying, you know, we suggest it. I'll go a step further and say we require it. You've got three competing toolkits, and I had this, I've had this at several clients. You say, okay, tell you what, for the next iteration, each of you three different camps, go write a very basic yet useful app in your toolkit of choice. Use the JavaScript toolkit. And you see one group raise their hands and go, we can't get a Hello World in two weeks. And you go, aha, you know, that's good information. If this team wants to use this server framework versus that one, go write something. And if you just have one experiment, what is it? It's proof of concept that will get pushed into production. <laughs> that's real code. You can't have one experiment. You've got to have two. You've got to have three. You have to have multiple experiments so that you can learn something from it. And as Andy says, software is soft. You get used to throwing away some of this stuff. It's cheap to create if you have some competition and learning going on in there. You're going to give somebody a hernia saying throw away software. Throw oh, away no, software. That is absolutely <laughs> critical. That, that's, and let me, let me get back I, to experiments in a minute, but that is a critical point. The worst thing you can do is keep half-baked software rotting around to smell up the place. You know, you've got to consider software is really sort of more like sour cream than it is like pottery. You know, it's you really don't want to keep it around too long. It starts getting funky. Um, <laughs> if we can get people to, you know, I, I mentioned this in one of my talks that we really want to look at code as disposable. And in fact, as an architectural principle, for, for any given piece of code that you're writing, any any part of the system, if you cannot easily rip it out and replace it with something else, then your design sucks, period. It's that simple. If you can't rip it out you know, overnight and replace it with something better, different, you know, more responsive, more agile, then it sucks, and you shouldn't be doing that. But that's not what I wanted to talk about. Let me go back to the, uh, to the previous question about experiments and just clarify something. There's two sorts of two different takes on what an experiment is in Grows. So on the one hand, there's experiments for technical learning, you know, similar to doing a prototype or a spike or something like that, where you're going to, you know, uh, try something and gather whatever feedback is important to you. Did this make it manageable? Did this make it more reliable? Was it easy to write? Was it easy to maintain? You know, that kind of thing it's viewed in a technical light. And that's, you know, not too far a stretch. What I think is probably more important is the idea of using experiments for process adoption. So, on that front, in the actual grows uh, material on the website, we try to put, for a description of each practice, we list out an adoption experiment for it. So we'll list up you know, how to set up to do the experiment, what to do as the trial, and what feedback, you know, concrete feedback to look for and evaluate at the end of the experiment. So just as a, as a really, you know, the simplest possible uh, example is for version control, right? It's the very bottom of the pyramid, most basic thing. So the setup is very simple. You know, it tells how to set up an instance, um, install a version control client, check in all your local source. The trial is to try to build the product from directly from version control into a releasable state and evaluating that feedback. Okay, could you do that? What's missing? What do you need to check in? 
you know, what other tools do you need, you know, this kind of thing. So every one of the practices tries to have this, you know, layout of setup, trial, and evaluation so that you can say, yes, this is working for us, no, this isn't. Now, of course, the trick is, as you go up in skill levels, as you go up the, the, the skill model, the lower level skills are much easier to specify sort of concrete feedback for. You know, if you've got a, continuation, a continuous build setup going, it's pretty simple to determine, yes, it's working, no, it's not. It's a pretty black and white thing. When you get into more interesting things like, you know, did you satisfy the customer's requirements and is the customer happy? That's a little fuzzier. You know, that you need some judgment for. And as we find from the, the Dreyfus model, you don't get that judgment until you're like a level three or four up the model. Beginners don't have that, which is, you know, sort of another whole can of worms. Something you mentioned earlier, Andy, about coming in with new teams. I call them blind spots. I've never seen a team that didn't have a few glaring omissions in their process. What they do, they do really well. That's how they've made a living and gotten by. But there's always some area that they completely have just didn't see it, didn't know about it, blanked out on it. And so you go to the Grows Method website and look at each role. We have a series of little post-it note cards with the steps that say this is the practice, this is how you should be using it, this is what looks good, this is what looks bad. I recently had a technical uh, a lead, a very, very senior guy at this particular organization, a few, oh gosh, over a 1,000 developers. He was considered one of the top ones. And he was explaining to me that we were using continuous integration wrong. And I said, really? What, what are we doing here? He said, well, the, the people on these teams are checking in code four and five times a day. That's four and five times they could break the build. If you just hold your code until the end of the month, you're only going to break it once. Now, when he broke it, it would stay broken for a week, but he only broke it once a month. So in his mind, he was doing continuous integration. But, you know, if you look at the Grows Card checklist and, and talk to most of the industry using continuous, they might argue that he wasn't using it very well. So he had a big blind spot. So looking at the Dreyfus model, right, when you're just learning something, you need steps. It's possible you have a huge blind spot somewhere in your particular home rolled process Here's some steps. Have a look at them. See if you're covering the basics. As a doctor, are you washing your hands or are you just cutting from patient to patient to patient? So, so one, one thing I like about the, I just clicked on the continuous integration part, is they list some pain points and benefits. So you can instruct the team you're working with to go through and read the pain points and saying, okay, does this, does this, does this resemble our team? And so we have a way to go through and actually look, find things that you maybe not you have a blind spot on. We originally had that, that final block, which I think now is titled something much more polite, but originally said stupendously stupid ideas. I mean, it, was, it, was, it, it, was, it was stupendously stupid ideas, which I really liked, but we had to change it to how to fail spectacularly. Well, we had a number of early beta people come back in touch with us and said, hey, at my client, every single one of these practices is what they're doing, but I can't show it to them because you're telling them how stupid it is. Could you, could you maybe tone down what you call it but leave it in there so we could actually show them the pages? So it's, there's a lot of people out there that are doing, you know, quote-unquote, the right things, but they've stumbled on the basics. What's funny, I'm, I'm looking at some of these principles, and 
a lot of these things, I mean, continuous integration is, is mostly focused on code, but there are parallels in other areas, you know, where I run my own business, a lot of these things like version control, you know, just having one place for all the stuff, continuous integration, where I kind of get a head check every time I change something, you know, time boxing is another one where, you know, knowing when something has to be done and what we're going to try and accomplish over a certain time period. I mean, a lot of these things are, I mean, it's it's focused on coding teams, but they really apply to a lot of other areas. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, I, and as a sort of a side thing, I think it's kind of funny because a lot of the stuff that we're running into in software development is not particular to software development. It's just because it's such an advanced we, – we, we don't have the distractions of – a physical assembly line and the seasons of farming and the you know the vagaries of rainfall. We don't have these sort of other distractions. It's literally just us and our brains. And so we're running into limitations of the species. <laughs> you know, these are things that our brains just don't do well. You know, we look mm-hmm. at the problems of you know getting teams to work and to manage teams. Well, if you look at the folks who write on, on organizational theory and that that sort of thing, Organizing humans to do stuff is, relatively speaking, new to us as a species. We haven't really been doing it for all that long. And you could argue we're not really that good at it yet. You know, certainly not as good as we'd like to be at this point in time. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of the stuff we're we're running into isn't particularly specific to coding or developing software. It's, you know, inherent limitations in us. Wow, that that brought the house down. <laughs> Preach, and everyone's thinking, "Oh God, all right, I'm quitting my I'm quitting my job. I'm going to go raise llamas now." But uh, <laughs> <laughs> good friend of but, mine always said, "That's it. I'm done. I'm going to go be a pig farmer." That's it. That's it. Yeah, then you have a whole different set of problems. But that's right. The thing is, you know, we've reached this point now. We started, you know, a lot of the agile ideas started long before the Agile Manifesto came mm-hmm. to be. You know, there, there was plenty of, of uh, uh, ramp up to that over the, the 5, 10, 20 years before that. And we've had 10, 15 years now since uh, the Manifesto to kind of see what people misunderstand, what we're doing wrong, what we didn't explain well in the first place. So we're trying to capitalize on some of that and say, okay, you know, for each of the practices that we're listing, putting in the warning signs. You know, if you see this, then you're not doing it right or, or you've got a problem. You know, putting in the how to fail spectacularly, which, as Jared said, you know, uh, a number of folks identified as their business plan, which is kind of uh, unfortunate. <laughs> um, but, you know, it needs to be said. You know, it's not enough to say, you know, do pair programming. You know, as a novice, well, what does that mean? How do I do it best? What's a sign that I'm doing it wrong? How do I know what I'm doing? So, you know, we have failed to provide a rich enough level of support for novices, which is something we're trying to address here, and then give them that path of, okay, now that you've got the basics under your belt, now you can start looking at you know, doing this, doing this other thing, and eventually getting up to the level of an expert where one of the things that, that, that we promote as if you're at an expert level at some skill is that now you're in a position to teach what you're doing. You're, trying, you're going to try to replicate your learning, replicate your successes. You're not replicating any particular process necessarily, but you're replicating what you've learned and you know, what you haven't learned and all those sorts of things. So you know, we're trying to get that – again, you know, the reason we put the name grows is really twofold. 
not only are you growing the software using the sort of tracer bullet development style where you've always got something there and you're just growing and adding to it, but you're growing the skills of the individuals in the team. You're growing the skills of the team. And ultimately, you're growing the skills of the organization itself, which you know, as an executive, that's something I'm, I'm interested in. You know, I don't want my programmers to be dumb as rocks. I want them to be the sharpest, sharpest tools in the box. So one thing that I noticed getting into this, because I was like, okay, well, let's say people don't have any process. And by don't have any process, it means they don't know what their process is. Because everyone has a process. It's just a lot of them, if they're not explicit, they suck. Of course, a lot of the explicit ones kind of suck too. Anyway. Um, <laughs> a lot of processes sure. suck. <laughs> yes. So I, I got in and I was like, okay, so if I'm just brand new to this and you know, Andy and Jared have sold me on this idea of Agile and they've sold me on this idea of Grows. Where do I start? So I jumped in and I went to the website and I was like, oh, they've been talking about these stages. So I clicked on practices by stages and I see immediately core concepts and stage one, which is really interesting to me. So you kind of move from one stage to the other. You're trying to master some core concepts and you have a place to start the safety and hygiene stage. Yeah, and that's, again, I think the most important uh, to at least get a solid foundation. In fact, if you go on the website, if you go to Foundations, there's a link under there on how to start or, or starting with grows or something like that. And it mentions some of the key core concepts of, of always taking small steps, you know, using the tracer bullet ideas, getting agreement from all the participants. You know, we have a, a core concept of agree to try, recognizing that in any kind of initiative like this, Anyone involved really has the power to sort of torpedo the whole event. And we try to get them to say, yes, I, I recognize, you know, as a participant in this, I can kill the whole thing, but I'm not going to. I'm going to actually give it a try. So, you know, some of these core concepts we go through and say, okay, you know, take a look at this. Make sure we're all on the same page. We, we agree we're going to try. We agree we're going to use experiments to adopt new things. We're going to use experiments to look at you know, architectural decisions and design decisions, technology choices, stack choices, that sort of thing. And then we're going to go through the practices in stage one and make sure we've got that covered. And, and if we don't, then, then that's where we start. You know, get the, the sort of safety and hygiene uh, practices done first. As, as Jared mentioned before, it's like first teaching surgeons to wash their hands and scrub really well. You know, you got to get the basics down first. So we give this list of, okay, here's, here's how to start, get that going. And then once you get through uh, sort of the first stage, when we've got practices listed by role and by stage, so you can, you can look at them um, both ways. Once you get through uh, the sort of base level thing, then we get up into kind of uh, checklist-driven development, we call it. So this is still fairly novice -y. It's a formula, it's not a recipe, and the difference being the formula is very exact. These are checklists. Do this, do that, do this other thing. Once you get past that sort of stage, then you get up into more recipes where it's like, okay, cook until done. You know, That's my favorite expression of the difference between a formula and a recipe. A, re a recipe says cook until done. Well, what does done mean? You know, my wife had that on a, on a corn muffin recipe some years ago, and it said, you know, stick in the oven at about 325 and cook until done. And I'm like, what the hell? I have, as a novice <laughs> at this, I have no idea. You know, as someone with experience, because that's what makes the difference, experience knows it smells a certain way. You can stick a knife in and it comes out clean. 
you know, whatever the metrics are, you know what done means in that context. But as a novice, I don't know. So by the time you get to our level three, that's what we would consider sort of, you know, a modern shop using things similar to XP practices, scrum practices, you know, kind of the, the typical stuff you would see. Then we move on to stage four where you can start doing more customizations, you know, saying, okay, now let's let's really tweak this and make this better and better. And then you get up to stage five, the sort of expert stage, where you begin teaching, uh, inventing new things that we haven't seen yet, replicating your successes. And, you know, this is, again, where I think we've we've sort of fallen down on the job. You know, at best, we've got really great teams out there doing, you know, the agile practices and being agile as it has been envisioned for the last decade and a half. But where's the new stuff? How Mm -hmm. many new practices have really been adopted by the community in the last 15 years? One, two, you know, a small handful at best? I'm certain we can do better than that. So that's the kind of thing we want to try to grow people toward and get into these higher level stages and, you know, actually try and move the industry forward more than we have so far. And, and Charles, your question earlier about what are they looking for in the big companies, what are they looking for in the enterprise, brings us back to Andy's recipe metaphor, right? I mean, a great chef is not going to use your Betty Crocker box. You know, she, They're not going to be using a recipe, but there's still a lot of people using recipes. McDonald's uses recipes. Any mass-produced big-chain restaurant has recipes because they want a consistent product and they're willing to sacrifice the creativity and the quality that you're going to get at a Ruth Chris or some nice high-end restaurant. At a startup, you get very, very smart people and you get out of their way and you hope some level of creativity is infused into the product, is infused into what they're doing, and you come out with something really great. Maybe a large insurance company doesn't want something innovative and original and great. They want a lot of stage three, follow the recipe, turn out the same sort of thing. They're willing to give up that performance. I think a lot of the executives, once you walk them through the Dreyfus model and say, look, this is where we're starting. This is why we need steps. Here's where you need the freedom. I've talked with some folks that have gotten to look at this and said, okay, what percentage of my team should be stage four and five versus stage three. So it's interesting. The big enterprise companies want predictability, and quite often they're willing to give up innovation or speed to get that predictability. So understanding that lets a developer maybe make a better decision about the type of shop they want to be in. Um, I tell people the Dreyfus model helps me deal with my mom. When someone is at those stage four and stage five and you're trying to teach in principles – and you have someone at stage one, two, and three who needs a recipe, who mm-hmm. needs steps, they're asking you for help. You walk into the great chef and say, how do I make a cake? And, and you've got this, you know, oh, just a dash of this and a dash of that. And you're getting really torqued. You're like, how many teaspoons? <laughs> you don't understand. It leads to frustration. And once you understand they need steps, but I don't or vice versa, For me, it makes it a lot easier to communicate and understand why people are getting frustrated dealing with each other, right? And that leads to the development shop stratifying all your your stage four and stage five people pocket off to the side, all your stage one, two, and threes pocket off to the side. And and it's a really bad situation 
that's easy to alleviate if you understand about the Dreyfus model and, and how the friction can come out of trying to get those layers to interact without understanding why they're butting heads. Wandered right off the trail with that one. Sorry, I was on a roll. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all good. All right, so the next question I have is I'm kind of in limbo with my role with the development teams that I work in because at this point we're building stuff for my business. We're not building stuff for clients as much anymore and we're you know some of this stuff may eventually get published so that other users are going to use it but for the most part they're building software that i'm going to use and i've hired a few people to help me do that so Um, you are the evil management in this scenario just to clarify okay just check i'm I'm also sometimes i jump in and and write code because stuff has to get done and they don't have time or you know sometimes i'm just like you know what i just i want to work on it so i work on it but for the most part, I'm in the area of vision and, you know, kind of keeping things moving along as opposed to actually, you know, writing the code and getting the work done. So on a team of, say, like one or two people where one person is the visionary or it looks like this role is the executive in grows versus somebody that's on the development team that, you know, as a developer how do we can you do grows on a team of two or three people it's a role not a job title it's not an hr i mean andy and i have have bounced back forth on this one quite a bit it's not an hr job title it's a role someone has to fill the role of the executive and it sounds like in this position it would be you someone has to provide the vision someone has to proxy up customer information but that's a role somebody fills, not an HR hiring slot. At a small startup, lots of people fill several roles. At a large enterprise, you might fill half a role. Oh, the bad joke mm-hmm. there, but it's a, it's a role, not a job title. Does that okay. make sense? Yep, that makes sense. But is this something then that I can implement if I'm filling all the roles or a lot of the roles? And am I going to create more overhead, I guess, by doing that? Then I'm going to solve problems. I'd like to think you're going to solve some problems. On the one hand, you've looked at it, so you tell me. Well, what do you and, think? and yeah, I mean, I'm just looking at stage one, and we do some of these things well and some of these things really not well. And yeah. I think a lot of these principles really would save me more trouble than I would uh, spend implementing them. So I'd, I'd have to say that it does look this way. So say well, your company does really, really well. You're a runaway success, and you have to hire 10 times more people tomorrow. Is it going to be easier to put those foundations in place later? No. Heck no. (laughs) (laughs) Quit asking me questions that I already know the answer to that I don't want to say, okay, I'll do it. I'll I'll just do it. A very wise man I know named Andy Hunt likes to say, when you're building a house and the foundation's cracked, you don't build the house anyway and fix the foundation later. You stop building the house and you fix the foundation. If you don't do it on day one, you won't. The LDS temple, the Mormon temple in Salt Lake City, when they were building it, I'm, I'm not going to go into all the history, but initially they were building, it's, it's a granite temple, and they were building the foundation out of sandstone, and the mortar cracked and, and got crushed, and as it settled, the larger pieces of stone actually cracked. And so, yeah, they, they had spent five years building that foundation, and they had to dig mm-hmm. it all up and start over. But they knew that there was no way that they could build a granite temple on top of a sandstone foundation if the main pieces were all cracked. And so they did. It was five years' worth of work. They had a ton invested in it, and they pulled it all out, and they put in a granite foundation. 
And that's, you know, and kudos to them for recognizing that and actually doing that because, it, you know, uh, Henry Ford had that great quote about sunk costs are sunk. And that is, you know, psychologically something that's very hard for us to, to come to terms with. You know, you see this all the time. Teams are like, well, you have to use this big expensive quarter million dollar product for tracking our requirements because we spent a quarter million dollars on it. Therefore, you must use it. And even if it's actively hurting development and actually hurting their ability to get code out the door, you know, they, they don't buy into the idea that, okay, yes, it's a sunk cost. It's done. It's gone. You're crying over spilt milk now. You know, get rid of it. Move on. You know, do what you need to do. So, yeah. so again, you know, we're up against the fight between common sense and the way our brains are wired which, you know, really don't work well with common sense. You know, I always love to look at the page on Wikipedia that shows the uh, uh, common cognitive fallacies that we experience. And, you know, the common bugs in our system, bugs in our thinking, they list 90, over 90 of them on the Wikipedia page. And those are just the common bugs. You know, I like to say I've met people who've got far more than that. But, you know, so a lot of this stuff looks like common sense. Like I'm looking right here on the uh, uh, the core concepts, and one of the first things we have is one thing at a time, right? So from a process point of view, if you're changing, you want to adopt a new process, you want to do something different, you don't throw out everything you're doing and do all new the very next day, right? And we've all heard horror stories of people trying to adopt XP this way or Scrum this way and saying, all right, we're throwing out everything and starting tomorrow, everything's brand new and all different. And what happens? You know, cue, cue the audio cue of the screeching tires and the slam into the wall. You know, it just, it doesn't work out well. Yep. So everybody's we say, like, well, what are the rules for XP? What are the rules for this? How do we do that? Yeah, nothing gets done. It's, it's, it's too much. So you do one thing at a time. And the thing is, we know that already because that's what you do or should do when you're debugging code. Do you go and change 15 different things and then compile it and hope for the best? Not if you're good. You don't. Yeah, you don't. You don't do that, right? No, no. You change because then you don't know which one actually worked. You know, you change one thing, see what happens. Change one other thing, see it happens. That's just kind of discipline. And it's the same thing here. You know, we do that in code. We know that's common sense. We should do the same thing with process. And if we're doing it, if we're doing process because the XP book told us to or the Scrum book or the Grows book or whoever told us to do this and it's not working, it's hurting us, it's hurting our ability to get software out the door, then A, we're doing it wrong or it's not a- appropriate to our context, to our the skills that we have on the team, to the sort of work that we're doing. You know, Whatever our context is, this is not working for us. So for God's sakes, stop doing it. <laughs> Find something better. Find something that does work. One other question I have about the stages just looking at this is, let's say that I'm really good on version control and continuous integration. We're working on time boxing. We've got the self uh, team-wide interruption protocols done. We've got a pretty good handle on everything else. Can we start working on stage two while we're still finishing off some of the things in stage one? Yes, sort of. That's a really good question, and we don't have a a really polished, formal answer for that because, again, context is king. It sort of depends. For many of the things at the lower levels, they're fairly critical, and if you don't have them done right, it's just going to bite you if you try to go up beyond that. If you've got the basics down and you're just polishing it and tuning it a little – 
that's probably okay. You know, you can probably start looking ahead and, and you know doing the next bit, but you don't want to you know skip over something major on a lower level just because it's hard or because uh, you know for, for whatever reasons it might be. You know, for instance, we've got we split out um, practices for different roles beyond just the development team. Of course, we have practices for the executives. This is what we expect from you, and here's what we'll give you in return. We have practices for users. You know, if we're going to work with you as a user to, to you know, build the software, here's the practices for you. This outlines what we expect you to do, what we'll give you in return, and how we expect to work together. Because fundamentally, I think one of the things we tend to forget is that a methodology is just a way of working together. There's no, there's no magic to it. There's no magic bullet. It's a way to get us feeble, limited humans working together you know, slightly more efficiently than just running around throwing stones at each other, which is kind of the default, I think. But and Also, just to re- reiterate, if you look at the stage one practices, use version control, continuous integration, implying you have a script to build your product. These are very basic things that a lot of teams do skip over. And there, there's a TV show a few years ago called The Unit. I love that show bunch of crazy soldiers and and these guys are really good world class and they're they're doing a sniping mission and they're breaking the standard sniping rules and and the guy looks at his boss and the sergeant and says but that's you know that's against sniper doctrine he said yes but we know the doctrine and we're we're breaking the rules intentionally that strategy you break them accidentally you're dead i would say that kind of applies to the level 1s if you skip them because they're inconvenient you're now back in scrum butt you're back doing fragile if you sit down and look at it and say, okay, we're not doing a time box because of this reason or that reason, you understand the principles behind it and you're making an intelligent, informed decision. After having spent a rather serious amount of time doing time boxes, then yeah, it's okay. But 99% of the teams that skip time boxing are not doing it because I've never done it before. Therefore, it can't be done on these products. Our stories can't be broken down that far. It's just impossible. Have you ever done it? No. Have you ever tried it? Not really. I looked at it and decided I couldn't do it. So while Andy's right, it does depend. Most of the time, I'm going to hold someone's feet to the fire and say, I want you doing all these level one practices first. Long way to say it depends. So I've I've kind of gotten a little overexcited and uh, asked a whole bunch of questions. James, do you have more questions? <laughs> well, I'd like to know how how do you see Groves expanding? I'll tell you the quote I like that I, t- I stole from Andy again. If Groves looks like this in five years, we failed. Groves is intended to be modified by the community, to be voted upon by the community, for these practices to be added to, edited, and expanded. Right now. It's Dave and Jared's view of the world. It's with significant feedback from some very smart people. Tony Brill's had a lot of insight. A lot of our beta users have had a lot of input into this. But as it grows, the people that become more involved, I mean, this, is, this lives in a Git repository, right? It's not going to be just us. If it doesn't grow and evolve, we've done a poor job. All right. I wonder if I Google grows won't work here, will I find anything? <laughs> you could write it. <laughs> I'll try it. 
my one man company. Grows won't work here. Well, actually, no. To be fair, we actually we do have a section like that. If you look on, let me see now. See if I can find it. Having said, if you look on the skills model, right? Traditionally, the skills model goes in uh, five stages for Dreyfus, and and we start with safety and hygiene as the first level. But I put there's a stage zero underneath that, which we say is you're not ready yet. All right. So in order to try grows. You have to have a certain level of, of open-minded commitment and a willingness to experiment with this sort of thing. If you don't have that, then none of this will ever work for you. Don't even try. Don't even start. You know, if if you if you can't get people to agree that they want to try this, if you've got you know people who are, are you know excessively territorial, inflexible, uncomfortable with uncertainty, you know, treat all developers as commodity widgets, you know, you know, I need Java programmers for this. Would you like a nine pack or a six pack? You know, and what sauce do you want with that, sir? No, it's not going to work in that environment. And and we're pretty, you know, one thing I'd like to think is we're pretty upfront about that. It's like if you're not willing to actually work with this and give it a shot and grow, then don't try. Do something else. Now and you I'm, have to come I'm back for the how do you skunk works this into the company? episode <laughs> yeah start your own well yeah. <laughs> let me ask you a question how many times and at how many companies have you seen an agile adoption that was skunk worked in that was this team that team the other team and suddenly all the development teams are doing this but you got no executive buy-in you got no managers on board with it and they let you run with it until something happens something stumbles the project is late and suddenly it whiplashes back, management steps in with an iron hand, kicks out Agile. It's now no longer welcome here. And maybe if you bring anything similar back, you're going to have to call it lean or Kanban. But one of the things, again, level zero is you don't have anyone filling the executive role. If you're not able to get that buy-in, yeah, you can get a lot of benefit out of these practices. You really can. You can work at the team level. You only have team buy-in, only use team practices. You don't have team buy-in, use the individual practices. You will be better for it. You will become a leader. You will be better at what you do. But if you really want this to succeed, it needs to go to the top. If you can't get the executives on board with this, it will not be a long-term success. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. And that's why we really felt it important to make this more inclusive than a lot of the traditional Agile methodologies have been, recognizing that this is a way for all of us to work together, us being everyone from the executives to the users to all the development, you know, you know, everyone. Whoever's got a hand in this, we've got to figure out how to work well with each other and serve each other's needs. You know, the executives have needs that, that need to be met. They need to know some, some uh, traceability and, and visibility into the process. And we don't want them micromanaging the small details. So let's give them what they need in a way that works for them and, you know, try and make everyone happy. Hmm. You, you hit on another good point, Andy. If you don't give management something to let them fill the, I mean, it's their job to manage the work and to have some understanding of when it's coming down the pipe. If you don't give them a way to do that, they're going to get real creative in what they ask for and how they, quote, unquote, <laughs> help you. So one of the things we push really hard in here is a burn-up. Because a burn-up chart shows you what's been committed to. It lets you see that that you know, commitment level when executives and sales folk get clever ideas. 
how the commitment for the release climbs just as fast as the development completion rate is climbing. I mean, there's all sorts of interesting insights. But if you don't give them something useful and actionable, they're going to come up with something all on their own that you won't like. You know, fill that, mm-hmm. fill that need. Get ahead of the problem. I think their heads just exploded. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to think about what, I mean, what else we can dig into here. But we've already been talking for an hour and, uh, you know, this show usually doesn't go this long, but... <laughs> if, if you like Grows, it's free to use. If you want to call yourself a Grows consultant, we'll end up charging some coin for that, but we're still ironing out that program. But if you just want to take it and use it, download it, print it, go crazy. Yeah, I'm going to be spending yeah. some time on here, because I, I definitely see it solving some problems for me. Well, and, and it's, you know, in, in a very meta sense, too, you know, we, we say that everything's an experiment. You know, when you're trying these things, it's an experiment. Grows itself is an experiment. You know, mm-hmm. we're trying this. We're getting feedback. We've made changes already. We will continue to make changes based on feedback. It's not static. You know, the whole point of, of being agile is that it's dynamic development, not static development. And the same should be said of the methodology. This is not static. We will fix it, change it, evolve it. As development changes, as developers change, you know, think just – I'll leave this as maybe the closing uh, parting note here. Think about the way development was done 20 years ago. Think about the way products were done 20 years ago. You know, shrink wrap CDs, long release cycles, all these kinds of things versus how many times have you updated apps on your phone today? You know, it's a different world. It's a very different world. Why are we using the same techniques we used 20 years ago? That doesn't make sense. So this is our excuse to say, you know, let's let's let the cat out of the bag a bit here. Let's try some new things, see what works, go from there. So can I become a certified grows master? <laughs> <laughs> no, you may not. Um, oh, come on. It's a, it's a two-day class, and if you fail the test, you still get the certificate. Yeah, just send us a chat. No. <laughs> I'm seriously considering making, making a certificate that has in big letters with you know cherubs on the sides and, and big old English lettering that says, this is a certified original piece of paper. Oh, there you go. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. I frame that. <laughs> right? Um, no, we, we don't want to do anything like that. I mean, uh, ultimately, I would love to do some kind of community karma voting system. You know, you say your team is great. I don't really care. What do your users say about you? Yeah. You know, you know your management says he's great. You know, they're great. What did the team say about them? What do they say about the team? You know, that's I would be much more interested in that than, you know, yeah, as you say, go, you know, take this course for two days and get a certified piece of paper. That doesn't tell me anything. You know, if you've got a, a reputation in the community, if you've got a reputation in the company, that's that's valuable. That counts for something. That counts towards showing that, you know, in this organization, these folks have learned how to work with each other. They've learned how to work together and are happy with it. That's valuable. I'd like to give them you know, points and kudos for that. Uh, anything else is just a piece of paper. All right. Well, let's go ahead and start wrapping up. Now, with these shows, I'm going to do something a little bit – I'm going to start doing something a little bit different right before the picks. And instead of doing silver sponsors, which is something that I've done on the other shows because I've had them filled, not on this show, I'm actually going to just call out briefly about some of the online conferences I have coming up. To this audience in particular, the next two that are coming up that are going to be interesting are at the end of February, we have a freelance remote conf. So if you're a freelancer, go check that out. And then in 
April, we're going to do an iOS remote conf. So if you want to go submit calls for proposals, you can do that. Right now, it's only up on allremoteconfs.com, and then you can scroll down and find it. I am eventually going to plug in some domain. I think I own iosremoteconf.com or something, and then you can just it'll redirect you to the right place. But anyway, um, if you want to submit talks, you can. If you want to buy tickets, you can. So go check it out. I'm also selling season passes and three-packs, six-packs, and nine-packs because I'm doing a conference every month next year. And we're going to be covering some of the stuff we talked about here, like Git and uh, Postgres and stuff like that. We should probably have one on like processes or development or agile or something. But anyway, that'll be next year, I guess, or the year after next. But anyway, so I'm just going to shout out to that. Go check it out. See what you like and shoot me an email. Let me know what you think. Let's go ahead and get to the picks. Jane, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I've got one pick today. So most of you probably don't know who Dan Wilson is, but he's a songwriter and you Definitely know some of the songs he's written. I'm not going to go into him, but he was big 20 years ago, and he's writing a lot of hit songs now. But he's got a vine over the past, I'm not sure how long, um, six seconds where he gives just tips on songwriting. And he's he's been collaborating with Adele and a lot of people you've heard of and music I don't really listen to, but he's doing a good, a good job. One thing in particular, he gives six ground rules for collaboration. So if you're thinking, you know, he's a musician, that doesn't really matter to what we do he sits down with you know big rock stars and writes songs with them which is a bit like what we do every day as developers we collaborate we do things we sit down with people with sometimes a little big egos and we have to get stuff done so he's got a list of things and he's got six ground rules for collaboration if you know vine that'll take you 36 seconds to get through so good use of your time one example uh number five propose alternate ideas to make a bad go idea go away, replace it with a good one. So if you're working with people, don't tell them no. I'll give them a better idea. So that's my pick for today. I like it. Uh, and, it and it really applies to what we were talking about. So bonus points, I guess. I've got a couple of picks. One of the things that I am going to be doing again, I did this for a while and then we had a baby and stuff and I kind of got off track, but... Um, I'm going to start doing periscopes again in the morning. So if you want to be on Twitter about 9.30 a.m. Mountain Time, I'll be on and I'll be talking. And I kind of wanted something that would work a little bit better than what I was doing because I'd kind of point the phone at me and then I'd have to finagle it to get it all to work. So I actually bought a mount for my tripod that has some microphones on it and it pipes the sound into my phone. So now I can just set it up in the same place all the time and stand in the same place. And then you can kind of see me talk to you. It's a ceremonic, uh, what is this? Ceremonic sound mixer or smart mixer. And it cost me about a hundred bucks on Amazon. It comes with the tripod mount screw hole and everything else. So I'm just going to go ahead and pick that. I actually did a periscope where I unboxed it earlier this week. So if you want to check that out, you can, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, the other pick I have, and this is just something I've been playing with for my leisure time, is Clash of Clans. So if you play Clash of Clans, uh, you can find me on there. I'm CMaxW, just like I am on Twitter. So yeah, so go check that out. And yeah, looking forward to you know playing online with you. Uh, Andy, what are your picks? Well, I'm not sure if this counts as a pick, but I find it uh, interesting and, and maybe relevant. My friend Derek Seavers had a, a post about a, a month ago about what he calls the slash now page movement, where whatever your personal website is, you add a, a URL of now to answer the question, what are you focused on? 
You know, Ooh. what's most important to you? What, what, is, what is driving you right now? Uh, and if you actually go to uh, his website at Seavers.org, that's S-I-V-E-R-S, Seavers.org slash now three, he explains how he came up with it. And you can actually go to the website nownownow.com, hence the three nows, and it lists uh, everyone who's put a page together and submitted it to him. Uh, now, before you go looking for mine, I have a, a clarification here. I haven't set mine up yet. <laughs> I have it in my head. Uh, it's just a matter of, of setting it up and typing it in. But I think it's a really interesting notion because it's an interesting question. You know, what is it that you're most passionate about right now? Is it your hobby? Is it that album you're trying to get out? That song you're trying to write? The novel you're trying to write? Is it mm-hmm. that piece of software? Is it, you know, chainsaw carving a bear cub from, from a, a log? You know, whatever it might be. It's an interesting thing to ponder because then once, once you publish that, once you've put that out there to the world, there's some power to that. You know, there's a bit of public commitment to that. It's like, okay, this is this is what I'm what I'm into now. This is my most, you know, passionate subject. This is what's important to me. Uh, and of course, I mean, it's your page. You can change it, do whatever you want. But just that exercise of trying to consider what is important to you right now, uh, I think, is very valuable. So, kudos to, to Derek for that and uh, and for sharing that with us. All right, that sounds really cool. I'll have to do that as well. Uh, Jared, what are your picks? And you guys are so much cooler than me. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, if you, We have a lot of people in our group that use Macs. And the laptops are great, but the desktop's a little overpriced. I love, I just sent it in the Skype window there, TonyMacX86.com. Don't try to make it run on an AMD. Get an Intel setup because it's very similar to what Mac is using these days. But my desk, home desktop is a nice Hackintosh with, you know, 16 gigs of RAM, a couple monitors, and I don't know, fun to play with. But the same pick I had last time we talked, Jeeps. Get out from, from in front of the computer, right? Don't go buy a brand new Jeep. They're, they're overpriced, and they've got tons of problems the last year or two. You saw that guy that went viral out of Australia. I bought a lemon. He was talking about a Jeep. It's great. Yeah. Go buy an old one. I spent this weekend, my daughter's a little bit older than your kids. She's 17 now. We spent the weekend ripping the Jeeps out of her the seats out of her Jeep. She just bought herself a Wrangler, stripping it down to the metal, spraying it down with a rubberized coating and putting the whole thing back together again. Go do something else. And when you come back, I think you'll find you're a lot more refreshed and creative. And I don't know. I like to tear things apart. Andy likes to make music. You know, everyone has a different hobby, but get out from behind the keyboard on a regular basis. And I think you'll find you'll be a lot more effective when you come back to it. I am so waiting for the Jame and Andy jam session now. (laughs) <laughs> i'm grabbing my axe let's go excellent excellent well you know I, I i play trumpet and flugelhorn in a steely dan cover band so you know yeah we'll get it together all righty all right we'll fire up awesome. green earrings so yeah. if if, so. if people want to see what the two of you have going on uh what should they do where should they go not just grows method but anything else you're working on too i'm at agileartisans.com and jared richardson on twitter Okay. My personal pages are at toolshed.com. I'm Pragmatic Andy on Twitter. And, of course, our uh, Dave and mine's uh, publishing business is at pragprog.com. And then the Grows Method is at growsmethod.com. All pretty straightforward. And, you know, there's always Google. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming. This has been really fun to talk about. And hopefully people are getting some ideas about how they can make things better in their team, in their software practices, and the way that they do things in general. Here's hoping. All right. Thanks for having us. Enjoyed it. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. 
Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit c a c h e f l y dot com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at iFreakShow.com slash form. 